Grab your Bibles and open them with me. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there is one as the blue book in the pew in front of you. And we are in the, the book of 1 John. It's page 1021 in the pew Bible. So we started kind of with an introduction to 1 John last week. This week is a normal sermon. So we are just going to take a passage of the text and work our way through it from beginning to end as we do what we usually do here, which is we open a book of the Bible and work our way through it from beginning to end. So today we get to start into the text of 1 John, where we will be living from now until June. We are at the very beginning of the book, 1 John chapter 1, the first four verses. It also, by amazing coincidence, was the call to worship this morning. I don't know how that happened, but it just sort of worked out that way. So hear God's word, 1 John chapter 1, the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of God. Please pray with me. Father, give us suitable hearts and minds ready to hear the testimony of the apostles about who Jesus is and what he's done. This testimony written thousands of years ago is for us today in your church as we stand gathered before you to worship. We have sung your worthy praises. We have confessed our sin and drawn near to the throne through the blood of Christ. Now we are ready to hear your worthy words that we might know who you are and what you ask of us. Pray that you would use this text and this book in the coming months to conform us to your son. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So think back in history, just a little bit, the year is 2021, and the place is Grace Covenant, so we're still here, and the letter of the year is Q, because that's the first letter in the Hebrew word Kohelet, which we often translated as preacher, the one who's preaching. The number for the year of 2021 was three. For no particular reason, we just like the number three. And the, uh, the question of the year that we covered that year was, what is it that gives significance and permanence to life? Or what is it that makes life under the sun matter and last? Remember that? And what was the word of the year in 2021? Do you remember? Do you remember the word of the year in 2021? I found it. It's this. It's Hevel. Mist, spray, meaninglessness, vanity. Because we were studying the book of Ecclesiastes in 2021. It's a book that does a comprehensive research study and a practical physical examination of what makes life under the sun matter and last. And what did we learn from Ecclesiastes? How is it we can make life matter and last and endure and give it significance and permanence in this life we have under the sun? Remember the things that Solomon explored, the preacher, the Kohelet in that book? Will human wisdom make life matter and last? Can we smart our way into eternal life? Right? How How about human work? 
Can we sweat our way to eternal life? We've just been hearing about how that doesn't work earlier in the service. What about human wealth? Can we spend our way or save our way to eternal life? What was the answer that Kohelet gave? The research fellow right, who got his grant and did his work, King Solomon, what was his conclusion after all of his work and personal experience? What is wealth and wisdom and work end in under the sun? Right? It's, it's, it's hevel. It's mist. You can kind of see it. You can kind of grasp it. But it goes away and you can't do anything with it because it just disappears. That's life under the sun. That's hevel. It's meaninglessness or vanity as it's translated in English. We can't make life last by smarting our way to it or sweating our way to it or spending our way to it. And what about a life that matters? Remember what Ecclesiastes said about that? You can't make life last, but maybe you can make it matter. Can we do that? What if we pursue power? Surely lots of power will give us a life that matters. Can we power our way to significance? What about if we pursue position? Right, a personal prestige. Surely, if everybody knows who I am and I have this reputation, then my life will have mattered. Or what about if we just pursue pleasure? Full-blown hedonism all the time. Will that make a life that matters? What, what does Solomon say? It's hevel. It's like mist. It just goes away. Solomon tried everything. And it all ended in heaven. And so at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, its very last line, do you remember what it is? Because he's, he's looked at everything. He's taken every option off the table. There's nothing left because nothing works. And at the end of the book, he says, here it is. Here's what I've found out. Here's the end of the matter. Here's the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. You can't find a life that matters and lasts under the sun. If you don't start, over the sun first. And it is only over the sun that we see things and understand things and come to have faith in things that make us fear God and keep his commandments so that life under the sun matters and lasts. That's how Ecclesiastes ended. But then we were also asking at the end of the book, well, what does that mean? I mean, Solomon, dude, you ended the book. Could, I'm, I'm, I agree with you. I'm ready to, okay, fear God and keep his commandments. How do I do that? Well, remember when we ended the book, we noted that Ecclesiastes is not the only book in the Bible. It's just one of 66. And its job is to get you to the point of saying, that's right, nothing under the sun actually makes life last or matter. <clears throat> I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm ready for something else. That's the, and if you get to that point, then Ecclesiastes has done its job and it's ready to hand you off to other places in Scripture to teach you what fearing God and keeping his commandments look like. So that was 2021, two years ago. Dot, dot, dot. Now it's 2023. And the place is still Grace Covenant. This year, at least for the first half of it, our letter for the year is J, for John. And the number of the year is still three, because we just like to be consistent, and for no particular reason other than that. And the phrase of the year, the phrase of the year, we don't have a word of the year, but the phrase of the year is, by this we know. By this we know. And there are a few years in between, and there's a number of pages in between, but we're actually in a text that's picking up where Ecclesiastes leaves off. You want to know, you want to know what it means to fear God. By this we know. You want to know what it looks like to keep his commandments. By this we know. You want to have a life that matters. 
and a life that, ma- ma- that lasts by this, we know. First John is one of the other books in the Bible that's picking up from the end of Ecclesiastes to help us fill out what it is Solomon has taught us, that this is the whole duty of man, fearing God and keeping his commandments. This is how we live life under the sun from the perspective of life over the sun. So last week we introduced the book of 1 John. Right? It wasn't really in the text, it was about 1 John. We got to know it in three different ways. If you remember, the three parts of the sermon were, is this a federal offense about how to read other people's mail in the Bible? Who are the people in your neighborhood, which was talking about kind of the other books around 1 John and its context and its near neighborhood? And then, can you hear the letter sing? We were talking about what is the melodic line of 1 John. What is its main theme? When you come to 1 John, what is it always humming every time you walk by it, right? And it's, if you can hear the main line, the melodic theme of 1 John, then you can start to understand its harmonies and its other themes if you can get the main idea of the book. And we said the main idea, the melodic line, the song it's always singing is by this, we know. And now we get to enter into the main text of the book. This is its prologue. We're not going to call it an introduction because it's actually not really like a Pauline letter in that it has a strict introduction. It's more like the Gospel of John, which has this beginning prologue. So we call this the prologue. It's the first four verses. And usually a sermon, or not usually, but always we want the sermon to follow, right? The outline of the sermon, the structure of the sermon follows the outline of the text because the sermon is the servant to the text. The text sets the agenda, the sermon follows it. Well, here, this was a little trickier for this particular text because all, most of the commentators agree, and I agree with them, that the structure of this particular passage is a little odd in Greek and a little hard to understand. And so we've done the best we can. We're dividing this into three parts, because I think there are three main verbs and three main clauses. So the sermon is going to go through this in three parts that you can see in your sermon outline. But understand, even the way it's written in the English, you can see it's a little hard to figure out where is the subject of the sentence exactly? Because this just kind of keeps going and going and going. So here's what I think. I think the first main verb is in verse 2, and it's was made manifest. And the second main verb is in verse 3, and it's proclaim. And the third main verb is in verse 4, and it's write. Was made manifest, proclaim, right. I think those are the three main points and the three main clauses that are the structure of the syntax of these four verses. And you'll notice that each one of them gets a little shorter, right? Was made manifest, that's like two whole verses and it's a really complex winding sentence. And then the next one's sort of medium length. We proclaim to you and then the third one is really short. We write to you. So that's how we're going to work our way through this text in those three parts. So let's start with the first one that's the longest. This is verses 1 and 2. And I think the main idea is what was made manifest. Let me read it again. See if you agree with me. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So we kind of got the second verb in there too, but that's okay. So was made manifest. There's a lot to unpack there. So let's start from the beginning. Literally, that which was from the beginning. Did that catch your ear? What other New Testament book does that sound like to you, right? (coughs) Advent, (coughs) Advent, (coughs) right? We went through John 1, 
for the Christmas season. How does John 1 start? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This sounds an awful lot like the Gospel of John. And there's actually more bringing those two books together than just the in the beginning way they start. If you were with us during Advent when we studied John 1, you remember there's a major theme at the beginning of John 1 in that prologue. And it's the idea of witness. It's the idea of testimony. There's this word who's come. This word is God. This word is life. This word is light. This word is coming. This word is tenting, living with us. But he's not recognized. Our memory verse this morning, he came to his own people. And his people didn't know him. So there's a witness saying, look at him. You need to look at him. You need to notice him. This is the one. This is the Christ. This is the Savior. And as John the Baptist does that witnessing work, people start to come. And every time one person comes to Christ, they turn around and do the same thing. They say, hey, I just found the Messiah. You should come too. And then there's this cascading effect of witnessing that starts at the book, the beginning of the book of John. Remember that during Advent? The word has a witness to identify him. Jesus has people saying, come and meet the Messiah. He's the Christ. The prologue in John is beginning the same way. It's beginning with that same kind of theme, a witness theme. We've seen it. We've heard it. We've looked. We've touched. That's important. It begins with a reliable Witness. They're not just reposting something, right, on their social media that someone else said. Hey, that's kind of cool. I'll put that on my Twitter account. That's not what they're doing. This is not a repost. Heard, saw, beheld, touched. They were personally with the word of life incarnate. They saw Jesus teaching. They saw Jesus healing. They heard what he said. They watched how he lived. They were there during his earthly ministry. And then look at that last one. There were four verbs, right? Saw, was it heard first? Saw, heard, looked at, touched. That's referring to something else. That happens in Luke 24. When Jesus' disciples meet him in the flesh and touch him after they watched him die. And he's back from the dead and resurrection life, and they're touching a resurrected body. He's not still dead. That's what touched is bringing to mind. Not only did, were we with him when he was alive and we saw and heard and watched how he lived and how he taught, we saw him after we saw him die. Back from the grave, we touched him. This was manifest in the way that he lived. Our witness relates to the way that he died. And we're here to tell you the grave could not hold him and we've touched his resurrection body. And now we're here and we're writing to you so you can know the same things we know. That Jesus Christ is the word of God. He is Lord. He is Savior. He's exactly what we're telling you he is. He's eternal life. Reliable, verified witnesses who were there. Let's notice a couple of other things going on in these first two verses. And the first one is this. You've noticed that I'm cheating, and I've read ahead, and I'm calling him Jesus. But this text does not actually do that. 
which is just like the prologue of John. You remember how the prologue of John doesn't actually tell us who the word of life is? It's building his resume slowly by telling us all kinds of things about him, but it's kind of postponing, pointing the finger and saying exactly who he is till right at the end of the passage to kind of build suspense, like, oh, who is this? I want to know. This book is doing the same kind of thing. Look at how all the ways Jesus is described without being named. He's the one who is from the beginning. He's the one who's been heard. He's the one who's been seen by our eyes. He's the one who's been perceived, manifested, watched by us. He's the one who's been touched by our own hands after he came back from the dead. He's the word of life. He is life made obvious. He's one who's been seen by other people. He's the one who's being witnessed to in this letter we're writing. He's the one who's being proclaimed by us. He is eternal life. He's the one who's been with the Father, and he's the one who's been made plain to everyone. That's quite a resume description, without ever naming who they're talking about yet. But they'll get there. So what are verses 1 and 2 teaching us then? Even as we come into the text at the prologue, about how we can know the word. How can we know this Jesus they're talking about? It's one of those so obvious, it's sometimes hard to see answers. You have to listen to and trust the we who are writing. Who are the we who are the subject of these verbs? We saw, we heard, we touched, we. They're a plural but singular voice speaking from the text. These are the eyewitnesses. These are the apostles. They were there for his life, his death, and his resurrection and watched him ascend into heaven. They were there. They are reliable. They are trustworthy. So there's this collective, and we will shortly see that there's also a singular. And most of the voice will be a, most of the book, sorry, will be a singular voice. One man speaking on behalf of all the apostles, right? So they're all speaking, but one man representing them all, doing most of the speaking of the book, the apostle John writing what all of them together agree on and have seen and witnessed and proclaim about Jesus. So how can we know the Jesus that this book is talking about? In his commentary, Douglas O'Donnell has a great picture to answer that question. And he says it this way, if you want to hold on to God's hand, if you want to know him, by this we know. If you want to hold on to God's hand, You have to hold on to the hands of the apostles. If you want to hold on to God's hand, you have to hold on to the hands of the apostles. Sometimes as Protestants, I think we undervalue this, and to our detriment. Without the apostolic witness, you can't be saved. Do we get that? Without the apostolic witness, there's no gospel for you to hear. Do we understand how important it is that if we want to hold on to God's hand, we have to hold on to the hands of the apostles, on to the apostolic witness? The reason we know Jesus is because there were men who were faithful to say, come and see. And when John the Baptist said, you come and meet him, and they did, and then they brought others, and they brought others, and that's the only reason that we have a gospel, is these men have been faithful to say, we have seen, we have heard, we have watched, we have touched, come and know the one we know. So to know God, you have to hold on to the hands of the apostles. And here is the apostolic witness, right here. I hope you're holding one in your hands too. If you're not, put down your phone and pick one of these up. It's a book. It's not a screen. 
This is the apostolic witness that has been passed down from one generation to the next so that you can know who Jesus Christ is. And without it, this doesn't save you. Jesus' work does. But without this, you'll never know him. By God's grace and the blood and the sweat and the tears of Christians through the ages who have died to preserve this text so that you can have it, you can hold it in your hands and read it for yourself. Do you appreciate what you've got? Sometimes in America, there's so many of these floating around, we forget how precious it is. Go to another country. Go to Haiti. When I was in Haiti, there were six churches. They had one of these. And the pastors took turns with it every week. So only one church actually had a written text that the pastor was preaching from. Otherwise, he had to go from memory because they only had one for six churches. I think we have probably more than one in this room, I'm guessing. There's several hundred in the pews. These pages testify to the phrase we mentioned a minute ago. The apostles are saying, this is about eternal life. Do you want to have a life that lasts? Do you want to know what it means to fear God and keep his commandments? We've written you a book. Beginning to end, identifying Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. That he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father apart from him. And no one finds out about him apart from the apostolic witness of this book. So one thing First John is asking us right at the very beginning, do you, actually, do you love your Bible? And do you spend time learning what it says? How much do you trust it? They're saying it's a matter of life and death. So they've written down what they saw so that you can know it too. The passage is already teaching us about Christian life, isn't it? This is just the prologue. We haven't even gotten to the body of the letter because notice what's implied. What's implied is that when you learn about Jesus, it must become what you live about Jesus and it must become what you speak about Jesus. Do you see the progression? This is, this is a required progression in the way that Christian life works. They heard it, they saw it, they watched it, they touched it, they went and said, now come and see. And now watch us live. That gives us criteria, actually, to help whether or not we should believe the apostolic witness. We can look at the lives of the apostles. Do you, we can look at our own lives. In our relationship with Scripture, do we love the Bible? Does it make you, I mean, remember Psalms 1? Psalms 1, the, the, the blessed man, the Bible brightens his eyes, right? And excites his heart and moves his feet to do it, right? Do you actually love? Are you holding on to the hands of the apostles to hold on to the hand of God? Well, prove it. First John's going to say that over and over again. Prove it. You're listening to Scripture. Let's look at your life and see if you really know. By this, we know. I hope you're ready for a get-in-your-face epistle. This certainly is one. It is a book that is going to insist the proof is in the pudding, as they say. Don't bother to play games. Don't bother to pretend to believe this. And never do what it says. If you really believe the book and if you really trust the witness that's in here about who Jesus is and what he's done, then we will see it in you and we will hear it from you and we will watch it transform you into someone else who looks more like Jesus. And we'll know 
And we'll hear and we'll see. And I pray and hope that we do in each other as we speak this book to one another in the next months. That's why we're making disciples at Grace Covenant. Speaking the word to one another. Using the word and prayer and the sacraments. So understand this about the apostolic witness. Two things. Where First John is going to go. First, people who do not live and do not speak and do not act like they've learned this, ter- this verified testimony from the apostolic witness of the text. Those people are almost certainly, very likely, not Christians. They're not believers. So don't treat them as such. Second, if you really do believe in Jesus Christ and have faith in him, then your words and your deeds will need to line up with what this text is going to teach. And it's really that simple. First John is not saying that what you do saves you, but it's saying we can see what's inside you by what you do and what you say. What's coming in the book then we talked about this some last week in the introduction. This book is a book of criteria to determine the reality of your Christian profession. It's a book of criteria to determine the reality of your Christian profession. By this, we know. And remember I said last week, if you want to know what the this is, you have to read the book. So we just have to come along for the ride because there's going to be a number of thises through the entirety of the book. Learn, listen to, rely on the word of God. This is the way to life that lasts. It's the way to eternal life. And if you want to hold on to God's hand, you have to hold on to the apostolic witness that we find in this text. If you want to try to hold on to anything else for life other than the hand of God, what does it turn into? I'm so glad to have this back. Hevel. It's missed, it evaporates, it doesn't matter, and it won't last. That's verses 1 and 2. That's the longest part of the prologue. Now we're going to look at the second part. Verses 1 and 2 teach us about a life that lasts. Verse 3 is going to focus a little more on a life that matters. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Look at what happens. Look at what happens when the word is seen and heard and learned and loved, and it becomes lived and spoken and proclaimed. Two things happen. You have fellowship with us, and we all together have fellowship with God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the result of trusting and believing and learning and loving the, the word of God, to do the word of God. And what does all that have to do? How does that all that hold together? It all holds together in the word that they use, which is fellowship. We have fellowship with each other, and we have fellowship with our Father and his Son. So let's tease that out a little bit more, because here this is working on answering the Ecclesiastes question, what is it that makes life matter? Fellowship is involved in that. A couple of years ago, Senator Ben Sass wrote a book called Them. I think it's a really good book. The subtitle of the book is, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. I think it's a pretty insightful book that Sass wrote about the present state mainly of American politics, his, his profession, or his vocation at the time, and American society in general. I think there's a lot of splash over, so I'm going to give away his primary argument. His central argument about why, why Sass thinks we hate each other so much and there's so much animosity and divisiveness and, and fighting in America. 
is because we're lonely. He thinks it's because we're lonely. We're desperately, desperately alone. We desperately want community. We want to be loved. We want to belong. And people can't find that. So where we go to find that is we find other groups. We find groups, we find community of people either online or in person or a bit of both. Groups of people who hate the same things we hate. And that gives us community. Like, I, I'll find this, I'm mad about this, I'll find other people who are mad about it, and we'll all be mad together, and we'll launch attacks physically, we'll launch attacks verbally against other people, and that gives us a sense of community. And as each group forms based on the hatred of the other groups, playing on everybody's need for community and everybody's loneliness and wanting to belong and be loved, the divides deepen and the rhetoric escalates and the violence gets worse. And so how do we heal? That's the end of the book. And I think Ben Sass is just as much a theologian as he is a politician. He goes to a PCA church too. He comes up with an answer that could easily quote 1 John 1.3. His answer is we need fellowship. And the only way to have fellowship, according to 1 John, is to hold on to the hand of the apostles. So you can hold on to the hand of God. And when you listen to the apostolic witness and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have fellowship with one another and with God and with his Son. So when 1 John, 1 John 1, 3 is offering fellowship to the lonely and the unloved and the outsider and the outcast, to us, when it's doing so, let's understand what it's offering in this prologue, right? This is introducing a major theme of the book. Obviously, we would expect that at the beginning. What is it introducing? O'Donnell says something in his commentary, again, I'm citing him a couple times today, about fellowship that you hear me say as well. He says almost the same thing. Fellowship is not sharing calories and caffeine, right? It's not snacks and coffee after the service. That's not fellowship. Fellowship is not sharing calories and caffeine. But it does have another C involved with it. The, The root of the word koinonia in Greek means common. We get the word English common from koinonia, actually. Fellowship is about common. This is O'Donnell's definition of fellowship. It's one of the best I've ever heard, and you're going to hear me repeating it over and over again. Fellowship is common life in a common cause for a common future. Common life in a common cause for a common future. That's a really good definition about fellowship. And that's what everyone wants. Everyone wants to be able to share and have a common life and have a cause in common that we're working for and have a future in common we're aiming for. America doesn't have that anymore. We hate each other too much. Ben Sass would say because we're so lonely, we seek fellowship, we won't find it anywhere, so we find it in groups that hate each other and we spend our time fighting because that's the best we can do without fellowship, because America has lost this and no longer has the ability to hold on to the hand of God because she will not listen to the apostolic witness. Do you see how that works? We, however, still are listening to this book. We have a common community that's the Church of Jesus Christ. We have fellowship, we have life, we have cause, we have future in common. 
And I'm absolutely positive that that resonates with you because you were made in the image of God who is in an eternal Trinitarian relationship of fellowship and made us for the same thing that he has had, both with each other and with us. And so First John, this book is going to teach us the what and the why and the how of fellowship. So stay tuned. It's introducing a theme that's coming up. But as a prequel, I want to give you a couple of practical thoughts now. If fellowship is a common life in a common cause for a common future, that means it has to start with what? Work with me. That has to start with what? Common life. There we go. I can't mouth it any better than that. It has to start with common life. And so, Grace Covenant, we're doing better at common life. And this year, we get to keep doing better and growing in common life together. And that happens in myriad ways, but it does not happen by osmosis or by accident. It requires seeking and pursuing and investing in relationships with each other, loving each other as we love ourselves. So I'm going to give you two two thoughts, right? There are a million of these things. But common life doesn't mean just showing up on Sunday and saying, good morning, how's the weather, right? Common life happens in life together. Go grab Bonhoeffer's book off the book table about life together. It's a great way to start thinking about what community looks like. Here's a couple of thoughts. So one way our family is pursuing common life is we've gotten to know another family in the theater group that my kids are are part of. And we're enjoying them tremendously. It's like, well, you're taking a vacation to the same area of the country that we're taking a vacation to later. let's, Let's vacation together, right? Common life. So we get to share life together because we also have a common cause and we share a common future in Christ. Or friends of ours at our last church, a previous church we were at, used to do this. I think this was a great example. Every Sunday, right, you have to eat Sunday lunch, right? Well, you don't have to, but most of us prefer to eat Sunday lunch. And a lot of the times, our family and probably yours, we prepare something ahead of time in a crock pot or an oven because we don't have to mess around with figuring it out when we get home. We just want the meal to be ready. These people would make two or three times the portion of whatever it was they were making that. So they make a huge meal. And then they'd go to church and just find people to bring home. Sometimes they would grab people they'd never seen before who were visiting. Hey, come on over. Sometimes they would get people that they'd known for years and years. Come on over. Sometimes they'd get people who were in the church they didn't know well but had been around to get. So, and usually they try to mix those groups together so that they'd have a little bit of all of them. And just bring people with them home. Here's our address. Food's already done. Don't bring anything to show up every week. That was one of the ways that they had common life together. That's really easy. You have to eat. They have to eat. Why not do it at the same time in the same spot? There's some ideas of ways to have common life together. There are myriad ways to leverage what you're already doing and then seek out and pursue doing it with each other. We learned in First Thessalonians last year, if you'll recall, that discipleship requires relationship. That's another way of saying if you want discipleship to happen, you have to have fellowship common life in a common cause for a common future. It's not just Sundays. So you see, we're beginning to hear First John answer Ecclesiastes, aren't we? He's talking about a life that lasts, eternal life found in the sun. He's talking about a life that matters, one of common life, common cause, common future. And now we've got one verse left, and it's going to add a little bit more. It's the shortest one. Most of the book of Ecclesiastes, if you remember it, Kohelet, the preacher, he's looking, he wants to satisfy his soul, 
right? He wants his soul to be settled. And he can't find anything under the sun that satisfies his soul because a life, and he wants to, because a life that matters and lasts has a satisfied, joyful soul. And verse 4 adds that into John's prologue. So here's the shortest part. Verse 4, we are writing these things so our joy may be complete. You see how that connects to the other two parts. What would you say is one word for learning, loving, and living the word of God as it's written down and incarnate in Jesus Christ? What is one word for believing and holding on to the apostolic witness, for holding on to the hand of God as you hold on to the hand of the apostles? What's one word for common life and a common cause for a common future? Almost. Joy. Joy. That's a word that kind of encapsulates all of that. What does fellowship bring about in the human heart? What does the love for the word of God of getting to study it and learn it and then tell somebody else about it bring, if not joy? You might remember our study through the book of Ordinary last year, if you were here, by Michael Horton. And one of his premises is that Americans have been trained to seek joy in the epic. And we just want one mountaintop experience after another. I recommend you watch the Super Bowl today and watch the commercials through this lens. Right? Epic. That's where it's at. The car, the Doritos, the... I think Tide Soap had some clever commercials a couple years ago. If my clothes get really clean, right, then I'm living an epic, fulfilling life. Whatever. Watch the commercials through this lens. You need to have an epic experience. And that's what makes life matter and last. And his, his premise in the book is that's infiltrated the church and makes us think that every Sunday is supposed to be this unbelievable, amazing mountaintop experience of unending epicness. And Ecclesiastes says, right, Here, you guys aren't, there you go, a little humidity your way. That's what Ecclesiastes says to that. Common life in a common cause of the gospel for the common future of the new Jerusalem. That's fellowship. Everyday, ordinary, common life. That's what brings joy. First John's going to develop that theme as well. But as a little prequel, as we conclude, Maybe ask yourself a diagnostic question, like, is my heart lacking in joy? And I think you should look at the other two parts of the passage. If it is, are you learning and loving this book and telling other people about it? That's joy. Are you enjoying common life and a common cause for a common future? See, I've said that about 12 times now, so I'm hoping you'll remember it. That's joy. When's the last time you spent time studying the Bible? When's the last time you sat down with someone to explain it to them? When's the last time you initiated and pursued life together with other Christians? When's the last time you sat down alone with Jesus in prayer with Scripture to contemplate your common future? If you lack joy, maybe that's because you're lacking in your life the things from whence joy comes, from over the sun that makes life under the sun matter and last. We read Hebrews 12 at the beginning. It's the very first thing we did in the service. We're going to have it be the very last thing we talk about in the sermon. What brought Jesus joy? It's in that text. 
For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised its shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. What was the joy that kept him going? To the cross, through the grave, and out. Is you. That his sacrifice could be applied to your sin so that you could have fellowship with his Father and each other. That was Jesus' joy. To take the word of God, to live it out, to speak it, to do it, so that it could be seen and heard and manifested and witnessed to, so that you could be saved by what he was doing. That's the joy that kept him going at the cross. It was you and your salvation. And First John's going to say, Christian joy comes from walking just as Jesus walked. As you give your life to making disciples, proclaiming the word of God so that other people can come to know the Son, and people who already know him grow in him, your joy will be as his. So that's the, that's the prologue to 1 John as it starts to answer Ecclesiastes for us. What does it mean to fear God? And keep his commandments. It doesn't mean seeking wisdom or work or wealth or power, position or pleasure. All of those turn into hevel and are nothing else. Fear God and keep his commandments. Listen to the word. Pursue fellowship. Enjoy joy. That's the beginning of the book. We get a dive back in next week starting in verse 5. Let's pray for ourselves together now. Heavenly Father, I pray that 1 John would be a book that helps us stay in the race. We remember that each of these general epistles pulls off of the theme in Hebrews, don't stop running. Keep your eyes on Jesus. I pray that you would use 1 John to help us throw off the sin that so easily entangles, to help us persevere through the suffering that makes us want to give up, and to help us identify serpents, false teachers, who want to twist the gospel so that we don't understand it and drop out of the race. Would you use First John to hearten us and encourage us in all of these ways, and would you use it to build a common life in our common cause of making disciples for the common future we share of a new heavens and a new earth? And until that time, would you grant us your spirit to give us will and strength to do what you've asked us to do? In Christ's name, amen.